All right. Good morning, everyone. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the chance to, uh, to speak with you. Uh, I think it is amazing that Otter Creek is having a class like this that looks into uh, how do we think about uh, mental health? How do we best equip ourselves as, as the people of God to join with what God is doing uh, in all parts of our life? Um, <laughs> I'll let you take what conclusions you want that there's no other normal teachers here. Uh, I am being recorded, so at least there'll be evidence of it. <laughs> Um, to tell you a little bit about myself and kind of the, the angle I come at this topic of, I know it's broad, church and mental health, uh, about how we as church think about and engage with uh, mental health and mental illness. Um, I'm trained as a licensed professional counselor. I work with Mental Health Cooperative, uh, have for about the last 10 years, uh, first as a social worker, uh, working particularly with those uh, with severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia and severe bipolar disorder. Um, spent two years as a crisis counselor, uh, working with those who found themselves um, in a suicidal crisis or in a crisis where they couldn't uh, care for themselves due to uh, really severe symptoms. And for the last three years, I've been working with uh, our crisis units. And so I spent a lot of time um, leading groups and working with our counselors of how to um, best help and engage folks for the three days they're with us on our units. Um, as they work through some really severe symptoms and some really tough thoughts. Um, I also had the privilege of um, going to Scotland for a year as a, as a missionary, where I worked with a lot of people um, wrestling with everything from depression to schizophrenia, but not as a clinician, uh, as a friend. Uh, a really great experience that helped me shift, instead of just thinking like um, a professional, what does it mean to walk side by side with folks and to learn from them? Uh, so those are some of the kind of the formative uh, background experiences. And I know we come at this from a lot of different ways. Um, and I'm really curious. I know a, a handful of you all in the room and um, uh, know everything that it's, uh, there's a lot of ways we come to the topic of thinking about uh, ourselves and people that we know and love who um, may wrestle with, with mental illness. Um, as you saw this topic of church and mental health, church and mental illness, were there any front brain responses of, oh, you know what, this is the first thought that comes to mind when you hear this topic? I know it's a really broad question. I'll, I'll ask plenty of questions throughout the class. Yeah? I feel like some of the constructs within our faith tradition set people up to fail. Um, mm. In marriage and in um, the Yeah, yeah. The, the stuff that we inherit, just the thoughts, the beliefs, the expectations that we come into, maybe not even always realizing, can really make this difficult. Yeah. Any other front brain responses? Yeah. I hate when ministers think they're counselors. Because <laughs> a lot of times they suck at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough that there is... Man, there's this wide spectrum uh, of how we think about mental health in the church, um, all the way on um, uh, on one end, wanting to say that mental health is a field, counseling is a field, isn't maybe that real, and that we don't have to really think about, worry about that. And another side saying, well, they're completely different, and they're completely opposite, and so they shouldn't talk to each other, but they're both very real. And when we're not clear about um, the ways we engage, that can lead to uh, uh, some rough stories. 
really have stories in that. And I also think that codependency is sort of a social norm hmm. sometimes, and so we, it, it doesn't seem unhealthy mm. to many. Yeah. It's promoted. Yeah, when there's a lot of stuff that's just normal, then we're just, it's, it's like you're a fish in water. Uh, and that can change it. Yeah. Yes. Um, I feel sorry for elders and other people in leadership positions who aren't trained at all in this, mm. but who really try to do their best to be helpful. And yeah. I'd like to see them, you know, overall have opportunities to learn more or to to know how to shift it to someone who really is ready to help because they're trained. Yeah, there are some uh, special circumstances, special needs uh, in kind of this mental health field. And without uh, equipping, it can be really tough to navigate sometimes. Good, and, and thank you for those. Oh, yeah. Um, just a concern that comes up to me is a, a fear that the Bible will be converted into a therapy manual. Yeah. Uh, and then really bad therapy will be rooted in scripture and therefore God-ordained. But not very good. Yeah. So we had like Rogers and Yalom and Moses and like <laughs> these are their different theories. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and thank you so much for sharing that. Because um, there's, there's, there's so much to this. Um, there's three big questions that I'd like to ask and look at as a class this morning. Uh, and please, as you have questions or thoughts along the way, I'd love, love to hear it. Because uh, I certainly by no means have all the answers. Uh, but I do think that the questions that we ask become really important. Um, so the three questions I want to ask, one is, when we talk about mental illness, what do we mean by that? What is mental illness? And then how do we think about mental illness in light of the kingdom of God? And then finally, how can we join Jesus in responding to ourselves and to our brothers and sisters uh, who wrestle with mental illness? So that's kind of the, the, the big picture look I want to uh, take. And I want to start off by, from my experience, uh, as a counselor and in going to church, that one of the very common starting places, um, <laughs> in contradiction to this class, is that it's very normal to start with this idea of a culture of silence. That mental illness isn't talked about a lot uh, in church field or in churches in society, uh, which is really interesting to me, because uh, I, I would understand that if mental illness was an obscure topic. All right, there's lots of things that we don't talk about because there is it's not very common, uh, but I'm sure as several of you know the National Institute for Mental Health. Um, came out with a big study and said that between one in four and one in five Americans will meet criteria for a diagnosable mental illness at some point in a year. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, if you look down the row and you're in the worship uh, service and just count down every four or five people, that lets you know how, how prevalent this is. That this is a wrestling match in which a lot of us are engaged. Um, but if it's not because of obscurity, why is there this silence? I contrast this when I had a back injury. Uh, there wasn't silence. I was able to talk about pretty openly about injuring my back. Um, and I never had anyone say, hey, it's re really, Adam, it's your fault. I, it was, actually. I <laughs> slipped on the ice and hurt, hurt my back. Uh, I never had my personhood questioned. Uh, I was never told, hey, Adam, you just need to get over that. <laughs> uh, I was never questioned of, like, do you really think you need to go to treatment for that? I was like, yeah, you should, you should go to a chiropractor. Um, I was very, it was easy for me to talk about it with folks. I felt a lot of support. Uh, but a lot of folks that I know and care about don't find that to be the case as they bring up depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or an eating disorder. 
And what I would offer, uh, what I've experienced so far, is that one of the reasons this is, is that mental illness can directly assault and affect our thoughts and our feelings, uh, which is a lot of times when we think about who we are. I know that I'm not my back. I have a back. I'm glad I have a back. But when thoughts and feelings are the very things assaulted by depression, anxiety, whatever you want to name, uh, it's easy to th start to think that that's me, that what I'm facing is me. And in fact, the, the way I think about it is there's this belief that because I'm facing this, this mental illness, that it says something about me and who I am. Um, and so I think it becomes really important as the people of God to take a look at what do we mean when we talk about mental illness? How does God see this? And how can we join Jesus in this? Um, so to start with this question of what is mental illness, uh, currently we use a scientific definition. That hasn't always been the, the case or human history, but the past 100, 200 years, we've moved to the more scientific. We look at thoughts and feelings and behaviors that are, are more intense or last longer to the point where it causes a problem. We have this fun language, it causes significant distress, or it messes with our relationships, or it messes with our work, or it messes with our school. So somehow, our, our human experience has gotten uh, so intense, so severe, that it started to cause a problem. Uh, and so there's this diagnostic line that's drawn. So if the anxiety is intense enough that it's messing with your work or your relationships or it's causing a lot of distress, we call that a disorder. Uh, and we notice that a lot of symptoms tend to cluster together, and so we call that a diagnosis. Uh, and it's fairly subjective when we diagnose, um, that a lot of it's behavioral. And so it's what we observe, what we notice. It's not like as opposed to a blood test. This can lead to that um, kind of false thought out there that it's all in your head because we can't prove it with the blood test. Though we may get there with some neuroimaging stuff in the future. Uh, and we use this biopsychosocial model. that We know there's a genetic component with a lot of this. We know there are, uh, that our thoughts and our beliefs are an important component, that our environment and our relationships and our early experiences are an important component. Now, there's a lot to it. Um, <laughs> and knowing that there's even someone here to teach on this, uh, I want to venture very briefly seven kind of big categories, because I think just talking about mental illness is a little too generic. Um, seven types of experiences, seven domains that our diagnoses look at, and particularly how I relate to them, how we relate to them. Uh, then we'll look at, so how do we make sense of this? So we know about anxiety, right? This is our very normal response <coughs> to possible loss or a possible threat. Uh, and this is really useful. If you found yourself in the middle of the woods, dropped off, or maybe dropped off, a uh, plane crash, and you end up in the middle of the woods, I'm guessing you'd feel a bit anxious, and that's good. Your brain would start going through these what-if scenarios. What if uh, it rains tonight? I should make a shelter. What if I starve? I should go get some food. And this anxiety actually prepares us for these possible threats. Or if you have a test coming up uh, in school, you know, like, what if I fail? You know, you should probably prepare for that. That anxiety actually pushes you to prepare for a possible threat. Or you don't wander down an alley. Uh, but what if that anxiety is so intense that it just cripples you? Or that anxiety hits because there's, there's not a threat, it just happens out of nowhere. It's panic, panic disorder. What if that anxiety is so revved up and it's just with you every single day that you're just tense and you start avoiding good things and you become uh, just always on edge so that you're just exhausted and nothing ever seems good or right. And we call that like a generalized anxiety disorder. 
But, while I get it on when it gets really intense, there's been plenty of seasons in my life where it's been more or less intense. Uh, we all experience anxiety on one level. Another major area is depression, our response to a loss, which is a really normal response. A lot of times we go through a major loss um, that it affects our mood, affects how we sleep, it affects how we eat, affects our concentration. Uh, but there are times when that hits so intensely that it just shuts us down, maybe even without a loss, but just hits. And we notice that we're down, we don't enjoy things, and our sleep gets messed up and our eating gets messed up, we, we can't concentrate. We start to believe things like things are all our fault, that we're guilty or that we're worthless. And this depression, instead of being through a season, can last for months. And again, it's something that we all experience on a lighter level, but when it gets so intense and so prolonged um, that it can really start to mess with us, we call that um, some of these depression disorders. Um, other areas uh, of bipolar disorder. Um, I hope you can connect with this when you've experienced maybe just um, feeling more throttled up. You have more energy. You don't need to sleep as much. Seasons where you feel more confident, more energetic, uh, thinking a little bit faster. Um, you can experience those to a degree, but if that gets set off so that the energy and the lack of sleep and the energy and the, the speed of our thoughts become so intense that we can't really even control it. Uh, we don't really have breaks anymore. And so the things that we normally wouldn't do, we find ourselves doing. Uh, that lack of inhibition, that this is what characterizes a manic episode uh, a lot of times, a bipolar disorder. That's usually offset with, with depressive episodes as well. Um, there are a whole group of trauma disorders. Those times, our reaction when we've gone through something uh, overwhelming. This is usually broken out between big T trauma, things that are life-threatening, and little t trauma, things that are overwhelming. And our brain has a way of, of um, finding a way to survive by even shifting into a different way uh, of operating during those traumas. But afterwards, we find they stay with us. And we re-experience them over and over and over again, maybe through nightmares or flashbacks or actually reliving the experience. And so we try to avoid anything that reminds us of that trauma. Sometimes we just feel numb from the trauma. Um, and the whole while we're just trying to cope, trying to find a way to make sense of the world, to stay safe in the world after something that's been completely overwhelming. Um, there are psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. And I know these can seem like the most odd or the most difficult to relate to, uh, but has anyone ever had a dream? Like literally dreamed at night? Yeah, so some weird stuff happens when you dream. You see stuff uh, that's not actually there. You hear people talk to you that aren't actually there. Uh, you believe things that aren't true. Uh, I started writing down dreams for a while, and there was one in particular uh, where I found myself facing a three-story white building that I knew belonged to the Prince of Denmark, and I knew that he had been assassinated. And I walked in there to try to solve the case of why he'd been assassinated, and I knew that the curtain swingers, kid you not, there were these giant two-story curtains that these guys would swing on, had a silver powder on it, which I knew meant that it was an iron-based uh, explosive. I have weird dreams. <laughs> and the whole time, this has seemed completely normal and, and very, like, yeah, the Prince of Denmark was assassinated, and I know what killed him. I wake up, I'm writing this down, like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, there's something that can seem so odd to hear someone say, hey, yeah, I hear a voice talking to me. Or they believe that they are, um, what did I hear this past week? 
Uh, they're the president of six universities. That can seem really odd, but this is an experience that all of us have. <laughs> and it's people trying to make the sense of the world as lots of weird inputs coming in, and there's some miscommunications happening in the brain. Um, and usually very valiantly, they are finding ways to make sense of this. Um, the other two main categories, one is substance use, one with a lot of us are f uh, more familiar with perhaps, where it's, uh, and this is more from my experience of uh, groups at the crisis center, um, finding its ways to, to cope, finding ways to either escape pain, usually unimaginable pain, uh, or stress, or boredom, just trying to find some ways of escape which we all do, right? Some use alcohol, some use apps, or TV, or shopping, or pornography, eating, gambling. There's lots of ways we try to find ways to even ourselves out or escape when we're stressed. Uh, it's just that with substances, they can have this biological hook that makes it really tough. Um, there's eating disorders, which I don't have much experience uh, professionally interacting with, but from the friends I have, um, when it comes to body image, when it comes to control, these things become really powerful motivators. Um, and there's everything from just not eating to, to binging and purging. And I say all these, yeah. Now with the substance abuse, does the substance alter the psychological makeup of the person ingesting the substance over time? Oh yeah, yeah, great question. Um, a lot of substances are psychoactive and so they change uh, when they're on board, they change how we think. When we're withdrawing from them, they change how we think. Um, yeah, they can cause a lot of very significant changes. Okay. That's what I was trying to, I was trying to make sure I thought, that's what I was thinking it would occur, because yeah. that's what makes the recovery process so hard for the person who had been on the drug. Yeah. And people are talking about, well, you chose a drug. Yeah, they chose a drug, but they didn't know that drug was going to do this mm. and alter their body. Very well said. Very well said. And I say all that not to, to, to bore you to death with a uh, five-minute version of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, <laughs> but to, <laughs> the DSM, what we diagnosed from, but to put this out here, like these are these experiences, and it's very easy to think in boxes then. That either you have depression or you don't. Either you have uh, schizophrenia or you don't. You have a substance use disorder or you don't. Uh, and that's not the case. We find much more this is a continuum of human experiences that we all find ourselves on. Uh, even in your own story, I'm guessing that there have been days or seasons where you felt more anxious or less anxious, more down or more up. Uh, where maybe you found yourself escaping a lot more uh, through a behavior or a substance or whatever it may be. Um, these are all things we can find connection with. And this connection becomes really important because with boxes it becomes this very easy us and them. There's us who don't have it and them that do, or us that have it and them that don't. Instead of that, we all find ourselves on this continuum of experience. And yeah, there's a line where it becomes a problem, but something that we can relate around. Um, I think this, these points of connection, these ways that we can find to identify becomes really important in this question of how we think about mental illness and our brothers and sisters facing it. And we have to go a lot deeper than just a description um, from a book. We have to start looking at why. Why is this here? How do we think of it? Uh, and the only way that I know, the best way I know, to look at these why questions is this through story. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to try to summarize the entire diagnostic manual. I don't want to, to try to capture all the complexity and, and beauty and depth of the Bible. But we know from the bookends of the Bible, or at least just the framing of the biblical story, it gives us a starting place. So on one end, as the story starts in Eden, you have God's dream for humanity 
where there's beauty and growth and relationship. And there's no suffering, there's no death, there's no illness of any kind. So we start with that picture. And it's not until the fall when humanity rebels against the author of life do we see death and its corollaries of um, suffering and illness and decay. And so now there are genetic problems. We can be born uh, with hearts that don't work the way they should, with pancreases that don't create insulin and so we're diabetic, or with brains that may miscommunicate with themselves and cause problems. We can be injured maybe so severely that we have to be, have an arm amputated or so severely injured by trauma that it's hard to make it from day to day. That there are lies that infect us against even us wanting to go down that path, but uh, these lies we can begin to believe about ourselves and about our world. We can call them negative core beliefs. We can call them uh, cognitive distortions, whatever we want to call them. And so we see that that's where we are. And we know at the end of the story in the new heavens and the new earth that all things are new, that death and all of its corollaries are defeated. And in the meantime, as we wait for that, that Jesus demonstrates God's response to suffering, to a world that is not as it should be. And so what I would offer is as we start to think about mental illness, that we see it as a symptom of a world that is not as it should be, as not as it was created to be. And then we sit at the feet of Jesus to see how he responds. And on one level, something I love reading about Jesus is that every time he encounters someone who's suffering, we don't have to hold our breath and be like, man, I wonder what he's going to do. <laughs> I wonder if he's going to heal this guy or not. I wonder if he's going to help this guy or not. Like, he always does that. But in particular, there are these teachings um, that I think challenge us to look at how we think about this and how we join them. Um, and I know I'm going through a lot. I want to get through some of this and then pause uh, to, to kind of chew on this together, if that's all right. You guys still with me? I know this is a lot. Cool. Uh, so John 9 is the first of these stories. And John 9 is this great story where the disciples come across a guy who was born blind. Or no, I'm sorry, who was blind. Um, and they ask this question of, why is this guy blind? Is it the result of his sin or his parents' sin? immediately just assume that the blindness was a result of past personal sin. And it's not hard to say, hey God, why, or the disciples walking like, hey Jesus, why was this guy born depressed or born with bipolar disorder? And Jesus responds, says the blindness is not a result of past personal <coughs> sin. Instead, it's an opportunity for the future work of God. And as the story unpacks over this, uh, over this chapter, and I encourage you to read it, it's such a great story. Uh, this guy was blind. He knew he had a poverty he couldn't hide. He knew he needed help. And God used him to reveal a deeper hidden blindness to those who believed they didn't need help. The Pharisees get involved. This becomes this big fight, and they didn't see that they were blind. They didn't see that they needed the work of God. And God uses this one who was being looked down upon at first by the disciples as suffering from the effects of sin. And God uses him to speak this beautiful truth that no... Let me show you what real sight looks like. And it brings up this question of who was really blind and who could really see, who was really sick and who was really well. Jesus talks about this more directly in Luke 5, where the Pharisees come to him and said, Hey, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus responds, It's not the healthy who need, the sick, who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
And Jesus sets these two sets of groups. There's the well and the sick, and there's the sinners and the saints, or the righteous and the unrighteous. And the story asks, who are we? Which group do we identify with? And it's easier for me to say, oh, of course, I'm a sinner. I mess up. Any of you know me, if you want to talk to anybody who does know me, that's going to be really easy to establish, uh, that I sin and mess up all the time. What about this question of, am I well? Am I healthy? Do I need a doctor? Um, and over the last 10 years, I've had the privilege of learn, getting to walk with a lot of people and learn a lot of stories. I realized it was very easy for me to think of myself as the well, as the clinician, the one who... Uh, doesn't have a, a current diagnosis that I haven't had that I have in the past. And I realize the implications of how I view myself are huge. Because if I'm the well, then I bring healing to the sick. I become the the carrier of God's mission to those who are ill. That I'm part of the givers, and that there are those who are the receivers. And the temptation is this pride of my own wellness, my own health, my own accomplishment. Uh, that things happen being empowered by me. But then I have to maintain this image of wellness, which becomes really tough, because I'm not. And so I have to preserve uh, getting everyone to see me as well, because I know how I think about them, the sick. I have to live up, this social me- live up to this social media persona, that how I look on Facebook, I have to look in real life, uh, because I know how I think about and how I treat them. I start to alienate myself because I can't actually be in contact with the parts of me that need healing. And I alienate others because it's really hard to hear God speaking through those who are just recipients of the mission of God. I never partner with customers. If they're just people to be served, then really I'm looking down on them. It's kind of like, does anyone like jazz music? Not yet, it's cool. There's people who love jazz music and not yet jazz music. Uh, there's a really big difference <laughs> between sitting in the audience at a jazz performance and being on stage or being with a group in a jam session, being invited into the music. And I realized from this question of Jesus saying, who are you? Are you the well or the sick? Are you the righteous or the unrighteous? That so easily, uh, with my pride of thinking that I am well, it was condescending. And that actually made me start to lie to myself of those parts that, that weren't well. So what do we do about this? You look at the other option. If we are the sick, if we are those who need doctors, if we are not as we should be, if I'm not whole, I haven't experienced the full reality of who God created me to be, and there are lies that I believe and injuries that I've endured uh, and problems that I face, um, And when I start seeing that it's not about the boxes, but it's about us who need the healing of the good physician, then passages like 2 Corinthians 5 start to sound a little bit different. Where Paul's writing and says, For if we know that the tent that our our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we... All of us groan, longing to be put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may be found not to be naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we be unclothed, but that we be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
And then further on, he says, so in conclusion of this part, we therefore regard no one from a worldly point of view. This becomes our passage, our message, where we say, yeah, we need the Lord Jesus. We need healing, all of us together, not this us and them, of us who have it together and those who don't, us who are well and those who aren't. And what I would argue is that Luke 5 and John 9 is Jesus trying to teach that there are no boxes, that we have to break down this us and them, that we're all sick and not as we should be, and that's precisely when we're able to see our own um, illness, that we're able to receive healing. It allows us to connect with God, allows us to connect with each other, um, and to realize that this is what we're all desperately um, thirsting for, to connect, to belong, to be valued, to join in the mission of what God is doing, and not just be recipients and those to be looked after. Uh, I think of a guy, uh, he went by a nickname of Buck, it's not his real name, Uh, and he taught me this more than anyone else. Um, Buck has uh, pretty severe schizophrenia, and most of what he says doesn't make sense. I was working with him. Uh, to give you an idea of kind of some of his thought processes sometimes, I was driving him to an appointment. I asked, Buck, how you been doing? He said, not too good. He had a great draw. I was like, why haven't you been good? He's like, haven't been sleeping. Why haven't you been sleeping? It's all the babies I've been having. He's like, Buck, I'm going to be honest with you. We're guys. We don't, we don't have babies. He's like, not a guy. I'm a girl. I'm like, oh, how long have you been a girl? All my life. All right. This is a middle-aged guy. Um, last week you told me you've been a bird all your life. That's right. I'm a unicorn bird girl. Like it's like without missing a beat, this is how he was trying to make sense of the world. Uh, and he had to live in a home uh, that was locked because he would wander off because he believed the eternal Father would tell him to go walk. Um, and I always just thought of him as someone so sick who needed so much help. And then an assignment I had in college was looking at Erickson's stages of development, um, kind of all these main questions we have to answer. And the task that he was in was this idea of generativity versus stagnation, which are <laughs> fantastic words, right? Uh, the question is, as we become uh, into adulthood and, and even middle adulthood, uh, will we generate, will we give to those around us, or will we stagnate? And there's this house I'm working with where everyone in there is locked in. They have to stay there. I was like, what does it look like in there? Is it possible to be generative in such a restricted environment, or are we doing these guys a disservice? And so I talked to the guys and did the, the different surveys, the questionnaires, the interviews, and Buck knocked it out of the park <laughs> in generativity. Uh, he would do chores for the other guys. I'm like, hey, let me do that for you. He would go to the clinic and would come up for me to give him a ride back without his hat and belt on. I'm like, Buck, what's going on? Yeah, I wanted a hat. <laughs> he asked me for my belt. He would literally give the clothes off his body. I was like, why, why would you do that? Why would you give away all your cigarettes or, or help someone out with their chores? Um, and he'd say, Adam, eternal father loves me. And he wants me to love people. And I realized how hard-hearted I've been to believe that here is just this guy that I need to help. Instead of, man, this guy gets it a lot more than I do. He's living his life around the idea of being loved and loving people uh, as best he knows how from, from his eternal father. 
And when I was able to actually hear and say, this guy can actually teach me something, or I need to learn from this guy, then something shifted. Because it wasn't us and them. It was us. And that began a snowball effect for me, and realizing that every person I encountered, it was really easy for me to see them in diagnostic boxes. And I went over to Scotland, and I didn't get to use those. I found out I didn't want to use those. But there was so much I had to learn that even people um, wrestling with things that I couldn't identify with had so much to teach. Um, I think of George over in Scotland who wrestled with schizophrenia, and he knew that his understanding of reality would get off, and so he knew he had to rely on a community to understand truth. And the humility that came in that. Like, hey, help me understand this. I know that we will see truth better than I will see truth, which is something I desperately needed to learn. Because in my own arrogance, I would start to believe things that I thought were true, that the community would help me see better. Or I think about my friend Colton here, who... um, the very strong advocate of, of um, mental health. He wrestles with bipolar one disorder very well. Um, he also runs a, a, a tech industry, a tech company, and he has taught me that he has to structure things around himself with community, and he has to be very intentional and open and honest in community because he knows he can't do it on his own. And he's taught me that far too often. I believe I can do it on my own, and that I need community. So I realized there were these deeper lessons, this blindness that I didn't even realize I had. I could have my eyes open from those wrestling with something that I, needed, I thought I needed to go help them with. And so I believe this is something that God invites us into. Um, to start seeing us together. And then when we do this, when we see more like Jesus, we're able to join him in his actions and in his response. Um, when I read the stories of Jesus, I see him doing really three things. Uh, inviting people into relationship, healing people, and speaking the truth. And so I see that in relationship, as there's not us and them, but us, it's a lot easier to connect, to listen just to understand and not feel like I have to fix. Uh, to be empathic and try to understand where they're coming from. To be available. Uh, to enter into people's stories with them. Uh, to join Jesus in healing and realize that the most healing things in my life when I've wrestled with anxiety and wrestled with trauma um, has been people who will be with me and care about me and love me and pray with me. And sometimes that means doing that. Sometimes it means connecting with a professional counselor or a psychiatrist, a support group. Uh, Colton and I have had the privilege of running a support group called Share Gathering every week. <coughs> we just come and share and connect around our stories when it comes to mental illness. Uh, and to speak truth, knowing that I need to hear truth, that we need to hear truth. Because um, I believe we join Jesus as wounded healers, giving a glimpse of the beauty of God's kingdom, saying that we're all invited into this mission. So I know that's a whole lot. Um, would like to, uh, I guess, pause there. Um, from this idea, from your experience, I'm curious thoughts or questions that are, that are with you all uh, in this way of thinking, this approach.
reflections that you had about your uh, interactions with Buck and some other uh, some others. Um, I think it's probably instructive for church um, understanding of mental health. Uh, in, in there's a within how you first saw him, there was a hierarchy mm. of, of who had resources and who had need of resources. <coughs> yeah. You yeah. had them all, and he had all the need. Um, but then there was this flattening of it where he still had expertise, and he still had something to give, but mm-hmm. you, he had expertise and something to give. Yeah. And there was more of an exchange than just a, uh, I'm the distributor of great wisdom and knowledge. Yes. Um, and, and there's more of a sense of <coughs> we all walk with a limp. Yeah. Uh, and in this community, it may even be the community of a counseling relationship. Um, certainly there's roles and responsibilities, mm-hmm. but um, that distance, uh, it seems like when the, the more that distance is closed, the more the we share humanity. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was, you know, it's from some of the uh, earlier comments that we had about the first impressions. Yeah. Um, it seems like if, if that were highlighted more, it might be better, there might be better experiences. Yeah. I feel like you said all that so much better than I did. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I think you're absolutely right. And hearing what he says, it does make sense. But when I was listening to you, how I understood it was how like Anton Boyson <laughs> talked about the human living document hmm. and that he was schizophrenic, but he was trying to learn how to minister to people in a clinical position with dealing with schizophrenia in which he ended up creating a study, you know, he's a, uh, a field study of pastoral care through that. Mm. And, and looking at that, um, it's learning to understand what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're taking in from somebody else's perception also. Mm. So it was kind of interesting as you were listening to Buck and he was telling you, this is what I'm seeing. Yeah, I'm a, what did you say, unicorn? Unicorn bird girl. That's yeah. how I identified on that trip, yep. Yeah, that was, was kind of interesting to hear that. It's not like he changed. He was still the same, but he just added a different dimension onto his his worldview. Yeah, his, his brain is, is very quickly trying to make sense of everything and put it all together in a way that uh, kind of tries to hold it all together. I mean, like, I mean, just can, can you imagine what that would be like? Of like, you're trying to grasp onto reality and it's so slippery. Right. And then if there's this voice that sometimes is, man, I, I have so much respect for the courage it takes to walk through that. Mm-hmm. And, mm, yeah. Yes, sir. I've had a friend for a long time who struggles tremendous with very serious bipolar yeah. disorder and a lot of health problems, and he's in a uh, an assisted living facility and just just a lot of things. And we've had a lot of things in common. We grew up in the same area. We've been in the church a long time. We've got a lot of common friends, and so you know you can't uh, you've got to budget some time when you go to visit him because it's going to take a long time. Yeah, but. I have, as I have gotten to know him, I have been really humbled by the way he has handled challenges in his family and relationships and kind of where he is. And I, I always come away thinking, if I had the struggles that he had, he has, would I be in as good a place as he is? And the answer is usually no. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it really is a humbling experience yeah. uh, in, in those situations. Yeah, it's so well said that, because I, I think this is how we view, how we think about, because if it's 
someone at a distance that it doesn't make any sense and that we look down upon, we just need to go help them. That's such a different place than what you're sharing of um, walking with, respecting, and saying, man, look at, look at the strength it has to walk through this and look at what he's doing. I think it puts us in a, in a very different place um, as individuals and as a church. society's kind of grown if you want to use the word grown mm-hmm. you know when I look around the room most of us grew up at least myself without what we would call, what we would call technology today we all grew up without it mm-hmm. uh, or I did um, and so something that's hit me over the last five years is a comment that we compare the worst version of ourselves to the best versions of everybody else mm-hmm. when we grew up it was <coughs> trying to live up with the Joneses, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I think from the whole depression and anxiety <coughs> perspective in society, people are depressed and anxious because they see these incredible journeys other people seem to be on mm. and the lackluster lives we seem to live. Mm. And it's, it's just exploded. And, and so whether it's our kids or coworkers, or whatever it is, it's it, it's a scary it's a scary route we're all on. Mm. And I know when when I get worked up, a lot of times it's because of or somebody I know gets worked up is because they're trying to. Well, that person doesn't seem to have that problem, and yep. we compare ourselves in a way that somebody else doesn't have the same problems or anywhere close to the same problems I have. I better get this fixed before I kind of open up about it and that kind of thing. And it. It creates a you know, somewhat of a doom loop. Uh, yeah, you, you can't just bounce out of that. You've got to at some point realize everybody's got crap in their lives. They just most people don't put it on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. So what we hold on to about ourselves and what we hold to on to about others really <laughs> shapes that relationship. Yeah. Um, I want to be respectful of y'all's time. Does this class go till? Till now. Till right now? <laughs> cool. Well, I'll be happy to stick around if you have any other uh, thoughts or questions. We'd love to talk with you guys. Thank you so much um, for, for being here, for, for your engagement. Um, hope you. you guys have a great day. Thank you.